Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome to Series 5, Episode 25 of From Page to Practice. After today, there's just one episode remaining. Today, I speak to Claire Badger about leading on teaching and learning and her particular area of interest at the moment, creativity. Hi and welcome to From Page to Practice. As some of you will have realised, this is the penultimate episode in this current series. And today I am talking to Claire and I'm going to ask Claire, could you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Hi, Bex. So my name is Claire Badger. I'm the Assistant Head Teaching Learning at uh, a school in West London. Um, And I've been there since 2015, so over eight years now, which is amazing. Um, So that role gave me a real impetus to sort of start getting involved in evidence-based practice. Um, And so I did a master's in teaching and learning uh, with the Institute of Education a few years ago. That was really, really cool. Um, And I've got a PhD in chemistry, so actually that contrast between the um, the way you study science research and social science research was quite interesting. Um, I found that a little bit challenging, I think, to start with. But uh, no, it was great. So that's me. Great. Thanks. And what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? Um, so to me, that's about making taking that educational research and really helping teachers to use and adapt that to improve their teaching. I think like teaching is just, it's really hard. It's just really hard. And I think we have a lot of intuitions about it, which aren't necessarily right. So I think that research can really help with that. Um, But I also think that lots of that research is quite inaccessible. Um, So I was chatting to a PTC student at school just the other day, and uh, she'd been doing some reading for university and written an essay and everything. And, you know, I sent her some reading some stuff um, in advance. And uh, I think I sent her some things from Inner Drive and from evidence-based education. And then we had a chat and she said afterwards, oh my God, that makes so much more sense now because she hadn't been able to take the research from the university reading and put it into practice. Whereas some of the more, the, some of the things were aimed at teachers. And then we were talking about what that would look like in our school and that really helped. So that's kind of why I think having those intermediaries is so important. That's great, thanks. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. So in this main section of this conversation today, I think there's a few bits and pieces that we're, we're going to pick up on and then one main thing to talk about. So before we get into kind of that main meatiness about um, the, the evidence-informed CPD culture within yeah. school, I just want to pick up on a couple of uh, additional kind of accreditations or qualifications you've done, just just in case you've got anything to share about how you found the Masters. And I believe you were also on that first cohort of chartered leaders with the Charter College of Teaching. Yeah, so the Masters the masters was really cool. I'm really, really glad I did it. I found it quite difficult in times. Um, I think, as I said, for me, it was great just to read some of the research in a bit more depth, have to construct arguments. Um, and yeah, those sort of essays, I did find I was much more confident like presenting at school because I'd had to construct arguments with the essays. So that was 
a surprise, I suppose. I didn't think that would that would happen. Um, some of, uh, as I said, the social science sort of having come from a science science background or proper sciences, I'm not allowed to call it. And that was really <laughs> interesting because, like, I was so used to everything being quantitative. I did a physical chemistry PhD like years and years ago now. But, um, you know, that was really quantitative. And I really struggled with this idea that you could get good data just from chatting to two or three people. So in my dissertation, that's what I did. I did some interviews and things. And that kind of just, I was just like, but surely we need to do a survey and get numbers and things like that. So that was really interesting learning about that. Um, I did find that some of the stuff at the Institute of Education was a bit too divorced from what was going on in schools. And there were some of the, you know, discussions around sort of cognitive science and things like that, that they didn't sort of seem to be that on board with or think had a place in educational research. So that was kind of interesting. But yeah, it was a great it was a great experience. So definitely, um, if anyone's interested, it's a much more academic approach. But I would say, if you're interested in doing it, then it is a great thing. So that was cool. Um, yeah, and then you asked about the Chartered Teacher Program. So I'm a massive fan of the Chartered College. I think they do incredible work. Uh, I think I've been a member since they started, pretty much. Um, so yeah, when that turned up, I think what I liked about that program was it was specifically about leading teaching and learning in a school. So it was much more based on my day-to-day job which was uh which was really helpful and a little bit more I suppose down to earth as rather than the sort of the research side of things for the master so it's sort of good to have have both um both things to think about so yeah both excellent programs <laughs> and that's great and I think it is good to get to see because I've done I had a kind of similar journey to an aspect to a degree I did a, a master's in education at IOE yeah and I did the the pilot cohort of the chartered teacher before the chartered oh, leader right, so yeah, I've, cool. I've got an idea of where you're coming from with the the two different angles and I think you're right I think it gives you a really well-rounded experience to have had both yeah of both of those sides of things yeah and I try and I've uh, you know at school I you know always think about well what would suit these people best if they come for advice on CPD and things so I've recommended the chartered teacher to some I've got one member of staff who's just started the new mentoring one uh, for the chartered yes. teacher, which looks really cool. So, you know, it's about finding the right thing for whatever those people are wanting to um, to explore. So it's great that there's lots of different options now, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely. There are so many options now yeah. that, that even a few years ago, they probably weren't around. Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I think there is something about, I used to do lots and lots of reading about educational research, but it was only when I really started to write about it that it started to crystallise a bit better. So as I said, that was something I was a bit surprised about, but it certainly really helped. Great. So I think there's something specific that we're kind of going to head into with this conversation. But I know um, building an evidence-informed CPD culture in school is kind of at the root of it, right? So do you yeah, want to tell us absolutely. a little bit more about what you'd like to talk about? Yeah. So as I said, I've been in my role for um, eight years now, so uh, in charge of teaching and learning. And what I've really tried to do since I've been there is sort of build this interest in research. I think I, I was quite lucky when I started. There was already a bit of momentum behind that. But um, they, I was sort of really frustrated in my first year because I had this like teaching and learning group, um, but it was made up of some really like, uh, it was made up of quite a lot of senior people in the, t- in the school. So another assistant head, the ILN coordinator, a really senior head of department, things like that. And I didn't really, I wasn't really sure where to go with this group. Like it felt like we were just going to discuss teaching and learning, like impose things on on people which I just didn't think was going to work at all uh so anyway uh that was I yeah so that was really frustrating I wasn't really sure what to do and then I came across Dylan Williams work on teacher learning communities 
I read that, I was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. This is a game changer. This is this is what I need to do. I need to not have like these people who are just going to sit and talk about stuff at the top of the school. I want to get actual teachers involved. Um, and that was that was brilliant. So from since 2016, we've had teacher learning communities. Um, should I, 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 I'm not sure who on the call may know about these. So should I say a bit more about how That's they exactly where I was going to go and yeah. say. So for anybody who's not heard of the particular piece of work by Dylan William, could you tell us a bit about what teaching learning communities are? Absolutely. So he's got um, five things that uh, he says that you need to do for these. So it's to have choice. So, you know, people have to have a choice about what they personally are going to change in their practice. In my school, it's very much choice, like completely like people opt into them. I know in some other schools, it's like the professional learning thing. Everyone has to be part of a teacher learning community. We we haven't done, gone down that route in my school. So you have to have choice. Uh, the idea is you make tiny changes to your practice, so little small steps. So it shouldn't be like a massive, oh, you know, I'm going to completely rip everything up and start again. So that should be more um, more achievable. Um, there's flexibility, as I said, to do what you want to do and how you do it. Uh, and then there's the support accountability. So I like to think of that as like two sides of the same coin, as it were. So you've got the support of a group of teachers that you're working with, but also it's kind of soft accountability. So you sort of commit to doing something at the end of the meetings rather than, you know, it having to be as like a professional development target that you discuss with the line manager. So it's that sort of commitment to the other people in the group. Um, and we have about... Uh, I don't know, 10 to 12 people in each group. So it depends on how, how they work out. And uh, there's always some sort of external input. So it's not just people getting around and having a bit of a chat about what's going on in school. There's some sort of external input. So that's where the research comes in. But then you're adapting that to your context because, you know, how that research works in my school would be very different from, from other schools. So, yeah. And how do you find that works in terms of thinking about the the choice versus it being compulsory? How how is that going? Have you got plenty of interest? Is it a growing yeah, thing? Yeah. Um, I would say every year we probably have about a third of our teaching staff who join them. So I think okay. that's really cool. They've been really popular. Mm. Um, so we've got and we usually have like four or five of these uh, TLCs running each year. Um yeah, so I think it's. I think if we forced everyone to do it, it would be really. It would go down like a lead balloon. Frankly, I don't think it would be popular yeah. at all. But having this sort of thing where you're sort of encouraging people to join, it's a brilliant. They're all mixed subject to us, um, so it's a brilliant way of uh, getting, particularly new members of staff. Actually, I suggest they join when it's a way for them to mix and discuss things with people outside of their department. That's really mm, good. Great. Our beginning teachers, so it's how we is one of the ways we deliver the early career framework. So we have a TLC on Rosenshine's principles principles of instruction, which is great. So that Rosenshine one, uh, I recommend that all of our early career teachers join. So that's a, a really good. That's just a solid basic grounding and in research informed practice. That one, um, yeah. Great. It sounds like it really moves away from, like you said, how it was when you first started, where it yeah. was kind of it felt more of a select group of people who are higher up in the school as opposed to yeah the, the more community feel of it so that's great absolutely so that's been a real positive and I would say that even if people aren't in those groups then quite often uh you know say you're trying something in in your classes you'll just like have informal chats to people just over lunch or in a departmental meeting so the sort of the information does sort of spill out in informal ways as well uh we also every year we have a staff meeting where the TLCs like feedback to the rest of the staff so even if they're not directly involved, they sort of choose to go along to listen to one or two and just find out a bit about what that group is looking at and some of the changes that have been made as a result. So that's 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 really successful. 
That's great because that's an opportunity for other people to to get involved if they haven't felt able or wanted to throughout yeah. the year. And yeah. presumably, is it a good recruitment tool for the next time? Because someone might yeah, think, oh, absolutely. actually, you know what? Next year, yeah. I think the main recruitment thing is actually giving it, giving the opportunity to chair these groups to to people, and that's been fantastic. Yeah, great. So you know, aspiring heads of department or things like that is a re- is a thing that they can sort of just grab hold of and, and run with for a bit. And I think that's. I'm always slightly nervous at the end of every academic year when I'm just like, oh my god, who's <laughs> going to run my TLCs next year? But there's always people who just come with me for an with an idea or just like, I'm really interested in this. Can you recommend, you know, some reading I might do around it that might run a TLC? And then I think if those people, you know, then want to go on and apply for other jobs, then they've got this amazing thing to talk about that they've taken ownership of. So I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. It's great to have those kind of developmental opportunities for people, no matter what role they're in, because it's the type of thing that sometimes you find goes to heads of department or specific people in specific places within the school and other people don't get that development opportunity. So that's great. Absolutely. I think the other thing about our teacher learning communities is not just on like the academic side of things. So we have, Mm -hmm. so we try and encourage people to join and think a bit more from how they might use it with their form groups. And we've had some that are maybe slightly more along the pastoral uh, before, but uh, it's it's very much meant to be like not just about you and your academic classroom, but how you might you know interact with the girls in other places. So yeah, nice Good. about the wider life of the school, not exactly. just the four walls that you're teaching in for an hour each time. Yeah, yeah. And so you know we had things looking at behaviour and culture using some of the evidence based education's work. Um, Bettina Holden's uh, teenage brain thing. So we had a group looking at that one one year. And again, that could be, you know, how you're with your form group as well as how you're with your teaching classes. So, yeah. Great. And I've said this a few times to other people, but I think it's important for people listening who might be thinking, oh, you know, I'd never get something like that off the ground. Oh, a third of my staff, I'll never have that many people yeah. interested. You start small, don't you? Quite exactly. often these things start with one and then yeah. grow from there. Yeah, I think I was quite lucky that there was interest in this sort of research informed practice when I started, but no one was quite sure how to make it work. And then, you know, I, I set up, I can't remember how many we had in my first year, maybe only two or three. And I ran two of them. I do remember that. Um, but yeah, even if you only have four or five people, you just need to meet. We, Dylan Williams suggests like 75 minutes and once a month. Now we haven't managed to make that work. Mm-hmm. So ours are after school, once every half term. So that's six meetings over the year. That's it. So it's not yeah. a huge commitment. You have to be quite flexible. Like not everyone will be able to make every meeting and kind of that's okay. Um, and then I, we always sort of try and make sure that people commit to doing something. So in the meeting, you know, I'm going to try this between now and next time. And then I want to, so the, the other thing that's quite um, good to do is get people to observe each other. So that's kind of the support accountability bit. So I'm going to try this. Could you possibly come in and watch with my year 11s, me trying this? So, um, and it is much more levelling, actually. So as a senior leader, I'm trying things and I'm inviting people into my classroom and saying, I'm not sure how this is going to work. Like my year 11s are my guinea pigs at the moment. But, you know, I had some people in my class the other day when I was trying something a bit different. And yeah, it was really cool just to be able to chat to them afterwards and say, I was trying to do this. How did how how did that look to you? Did it actually come across in the way I wanted? So that's good. Uh, it's so important to be open to that as well, isn't it? That, yeah. that you know you're on that same same situation. Everybody else, you're trying something new, and you want to hear feedback from other professionals about what they think about how that went. You know, as opposed yeah. to come and watch me, I'm going to do it all perfectly. Yeah, yeah, which we exactly. know isn't going to be the case. Yeah, and you know these TLCs have 
you know, as I said, our early career teachers on them, our academic deputy is, has been on them before, not this year, but, you know, it's got all of senior people from all levels and, you know, yeah. all the way down to, as I said, our training teachers. So it's, it's a great way of doing it. Perfect. So taking a slightly different tack, I uh, I saw a tweet from Bradley Bush the other day and I thought, <laughs> hang on a minute, I've already booked to speak to this person. So do you want to uh, tell everybody what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, this was Bradley's uh, slightly crazy Where's Wally C- Teacher CPD Academy uh, tweet, which, uh, yes, I was uh, a particular fan of. Yes, so very excitingly, um, Brad uh, reached out to me a few months ago and said, would I be interested in writing a book on creativity, uh, which I'm doing with a a researcher, university lecturer called Jonathan Firth, who's up in the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. So this actually really links to our TLCs, SLCs, because um, the TLC that I'm running this year and one I ran last year has all been about creativity. So that's where that's come from. And uh, we've worked with Jonathan as well. He's coming to school. So, yeah, that's that's really exciting. A little bit scary, but really exciting. So, yeah, kind of Great. getting into creativity. <laughs> yeah. So where does the, the creativity fit with the science? Because for, for someone like me on an outsider perspective, I'm going, oh, those things don't yeah. always add up. So so where are you how are you approaching that? Yeah, I think that's one of the sort of things I'm trying to sort of myth bust, I suppose, within school mm-hmm. as much as anything else. So uh, the creativity stuff um, came about because, like, so my school is uh, is academic selective, so it's really, they're really high achieving, the girls we have, and they're wonderful. And I love working with them. But that can become really, like, they get really narrow, so they work really hard, but become really narrow just about kind of, you know exam marks and things like that so Mm -hmm. it's one of our things that we've been trying we sort of put creativity as a whole school priority from 2022 so a year and a bit ago because they just weren't able to think well it was hard for them to think more flexibly if they have this just focus on I've got to learn the mark schemes um so that was kind of where the creativity kind of focus came on and actually how do we develop these skills and I think there's quite a lot of like knowledge versus creativity stuff out there Daisy Christodoulou put an interesting article out uh, last week about that and you know you do need knowledge to think creatively but I do think that there has been a bit too much of a assumption and this was what Daisy's article was about an assumption that just by having lots and lots and lots of knowledge immediately like the critical thinking and the creative thinking will just happen and my experience is that it doesn't and actually we are doing our students a disservice if we're not helping them develop those sort of broader skills Uh, so that's why creativity and in terms of how it fits in across all subjects um, I as a scientist equate it much more with like critical thinking and problem solving and things like that but um, and but that I think is a real difficulty with the term um, and we found that at school when we sort of first started introducing it like different people just thought it was different things some people was just like oh it's not at all relevant to my subject I'm, I teach maths so it doesn't matter and other people were just like oh yeah this means that you know I need to be creative in what I do in my lessons so um, that was really interesting like some first things was I would think about it as like the Craig Barton Swiss roll lesson <laughs> if you've heard of that one from his book which is you know oh if I do something fun and engaging and, and I'm doing something creative or, or they're making something somehow you know that's that's creativity and it's just rubbish <laughs> it's funny though isn't it because it is the image that it conjures yeah. up in your head the word creativity so how have you gone about you know obviously you've been speaking to staff in your school how have mm. you then gone about kind of reframing that yeah so and, and, and I think there is some sort of emotional attachment to it as well yeah. I think when you talk about it there's some people who are like oh yeah no we absolutely have to do this it's the best thing you know we 
and you know these skills are so important and others are just like no that's just fluffy rubbish let's just teach some stuff so I think it can be quite polarizing so to go back to your question what have we done well I think the TLC was was like the first thing we have a group of staff looking at this specifically and the one last year we actually called knowledge and creativity to make sure that there was that real link between the knowledge and the creativity and the first things we did was actually to look at how knowledge built in different subjects so that was really interesting to compare that and to think you know sometimes it's quite hard I think in science and math to be creative because you need to know so much more stuff just the nature of those subjects being hierarchical uh, so that was the first thing. And then I came across some uh, work by Bill Lucas. So uh, I can't remember what it's called, Creative Leadership in Schools or something. There was a review that I came across. And um, they split creativity. Rather than creativity, they've made it creative thinking and creative habits of mind. And um, they've sort of split into these five creative habits of mind. So it's inquisitive, imaginative, persistent, disciplined and collaborative. And then within those, there's kind of sub-habits. So actually looking at creativity through those five kind of lenses, actually that made a real difference. And I think it helped people move away from, oh, it must be about art or it's about me being creative to kind of this teaching to develop those skills in, in the students. So, yeah, that was that was really helpful. That. Great. So are you if you kind of divided down what you're doing into kind of those categories and going, we'll focus on this one and this one, or is it more different people are looking at different things? Yeah, I think different people are looking at different things. We've only really been using that framework since the beginning of this year. So it's only right. been, um, uh, I certainly, one of the things, one of the resources that, um, that, that Bill Lucas um, provided was like just the five habits where you can just like go and observe a lesson and notice on, and notice what's going on under each of them. Right. So that's been really helpful to really kind of when we're doing our peer observations at TLC, just to kind of think, oh, where am I seeing like the the inquisitiveness? And I noticed in a lesson I went in the other day that actually our girls aren't particularly good at asking questions themselves. Sometimes they're very happy just to sit there and take the answers. So even just a tiny switch to asking a question, like, why do you think that, you know, what is that? What else could it be? Just just a slight tweak in how we ask our questions can kind of make a difference there. Um, so that's how, and for me personally, I've been thinking about um, the, uh, like, the inquiry thing. So I think ridiculously, oh, it's science, and science is all about inquiry. Actually, I don't think in my lessons, in my teaching, there's a lot of inquiry, um, just because, you know, you focus on getting them to understand the chemistry, whereas actually you can you can make again tiny tweaks rather than oh I'm gonna have to now do this massive long eight week you know science inquiry project which actually they don't know enough science to do properly so it's all a bit of a waste of time so just like tiny things like okay well how might you do this practical like you know 10 minutes into the lesson you've got this equipment what might you do and that's what some people came to observe the other day which was yeah really yeah that worked really well I think it's really interesting. It's a good kind of, I'm using the word reframing again, but I think mm. that's the way I'm looking at it to, in terms of being able to go in and, and view a lesson and a very non-judgmental way of doing yeah. it to go, actually, I'm just looking more at the students and what they're doing, but at these kind of five things to see where we're picking these things up in the lesson, where we might look at developing certain things and without being some of the frameworks we use to observe lessons can feel very judgmental even when yeah. there's no grade applied right yeah, yeah whereas this feels a bit more a nice yeah. overview yeah and you're as I said that I quite like this idea of noticing because I think sometimes people say oh god it's another thing I need to do and actually quite a lot of the time you see a lot of this stuff anyway so I think that was the mm. other nice thing about this 
you know, we'd been thinking about trying to get the girls to be more resilient for a long time. And actually this idea of discipline and persistence, that sort of comes through in that. We've been working on metacognition for ages, getting them to think about what they're doing and why. And again, that sort of reflecting critically comes into these things as well. So, you know, it was it was just helping people to see that this isn't massively different, but it's just looking at things, like you say, in a slightly different way um, in order to actually develop them into, you know, we want our students to be brilliant people when they leave to develop them into more creative thinkers. So, yeah. Great. And is there anything, anything else maybe you've read or what you're working on related to this that you'd like to kind of share? Yeah, absolutely. So um, alongside the teacher learning communities, we've set up student learning communities. So that's quite unusual, wow. I think. So they're very different yeah. from, I think a lot of schools do sort of student focus groups and things like that. And we have those as well. And those are brilliant. Um, but this, I like to think of it like informed student voice. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's quite a nice way of thinking about it. So it's the same model as uh, Dylan Williams model. So for the teachers, you get them together and they do some sort of reading. There's some sort of external input and then they come up with a sort of a plan to try something or to notice something different in their lessons and then they come back. Um, so that, so I've been working with a group um, of year 12 students, lower six students um, on creativity. So I did that last year and a different group this year. Um, I've called it kind of skills for the future because I thought creativity would put them off. They wouldn't sign up for anything called creativity. So skills for the future, which uh, there's, yeah, lots. So I've got eight this year, I think I had about 12 last year. And uh, that's another way of just getting a group of students within the school to think about these things and, and notice these things. So, again, they've also had that noticing creative habits of mind and they've been trying to notice where they're doing those things in their lessons and come back. Um, but, yeah, there's because there's quite a lot of them. Like, as I said, they, they have misconceptions about stuff. So just having a space where they can talk about it. I've had various comments in the past going, oh, I never even thought about my learning before, but just having to come in and talk about how I'm learning and why I'm learning is really helpful. So um, those those groups are great. And we have them in year eight and year 10 as well. The, on a slightly different theme this year, the year 10s are looking at feedback and the year eights are looking at kind of how you learn. So, um, mm. yeah. So there well, are, that's and, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is really interesting. And again, the idea is that they... Um, learn something and then they feed back to, to their peers so I was just putting some stuff together for my group who are going to run an assembly in a form time for their um for their uh, uh peers um coming up uh in the second half next term and then they also present at the staff meeting so the staff meeting with the teacher learning communities the students present to the teachers and say this is what you know we, we've been working on we find it really helpful when teachers do this and that's really powerful actually really powerful Oh, that's interesting because I was about to say, do they pick up on anything that you think, oh, yeah, we hadn't really thought of that or that's different or interesting that they see it that way, something that's been useful for, yeah, for you? Yeah, there's, I'm trying to think of a specific example where they sort of come up with stuff and it's like, wow, that's that's how you see that. That's fascinating. I think you certainly get quite a lot of the the focus on, you know, I need to learn stuff for my exams. So you get that a lot of that comes out. Now, is that particularly surprising? Maybe not. But that sort of, you know, is very, very you know, like driven towards the assessments. Um, you do get things like, oh, you know, I thought I'd have to work, you know, do hours and hours of work. And, you know, I've certainly last year I had people reflecting that some of the strategies that they thought were really successful for GCSE just didn't work when they get onto the sixth form. So even just that noticing that I've got to do something different and do something different and here are some different things and talking about it, I think it's really helpful. As I said, it's that kind of getting that metacognitive thinking going. Um, 
And that's kind of where I think I am at the moment with the creativity, actually. It's kind of, you know, here are some strategies. Yes, you need to know some knowledge, but if you don't know anything about how to be a bit more creative, so, you know, then then you can't you can't transfer that information elsewhere. So just getting them to talk about it and getting them to see that, you know, just trying some different ways, routes through a maths problem is creative, even if, you know, it might not feel creative. Actually, that is creative. Yeah, I think the the making them aware of of how they learn and really getting to think about it, I think it's something that often happens a bit too late. It can be a oh, in year eleven, we're going to talk to you about how Study you learn. Skills, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I've I've spoken to to people before about um, who's it by Helen Howe's book, The Revision Revolution, and that's mm-hmm. starting you know at the very beginning, getting people yeah. thinking about how they learn and and doing it much earlier on and yeah. I think the, the idea of having them in year eight and 10 and 12 thinking about different stages is um is a nice way of doing it yeah no it's really good and it goes alongside like the same with the teacher learning communities and student learning communities we have stuff that happens in our pastoral curriculum as well which is that everyone has to do like the whole cohort and I run mm-hmm. various assemblies and things but as I said I think there's something powerful about a small group again they volunteer they feel a bit special Mm-hmm. Um, we always get an expert in to come and work with them. So uh, Jonathan, um, my co-author, came to work with the students, uh, my group of lower six students, a couple of weeks ago on a sort of nice. creativity workshop. So we took them off timetable. They got to hear from an expert. They got to plan to escape a zombie apocalypse, which uh, <laughs> which was quite fun. Um, but with the idea that you know, think about what you already know. Let's let's put some of these creative thinking strategies in, and then we made paper airplanes. Uh, which is also really fun, but yeah. So there was a there was some g- good uh, reasoning behind making the paper airplanes as well. There was a cool study uh, where um, you you split the kids into two groups, or the um, and half were allowed to look up things on Google on how to make like a paper airplane, and the other half just kind of had a play. So we wanted to recreate that with our students. And what's interesting is that the the group that just had a play they might not have had any better paper airplanes like the ones who use google and you know just followed a method the paper airplanes were better but the if you just had a play around without google then you tended to get more creative output so things are a bit mm-hmm. different so i think that was and that's absolutely what we saw with our, our girls like you know the ones who just followed the method they like they produced some pretty good planes but the other ones just got more of a chance because they weren't restricted to a method. They got to play around a bit more and they trial, there's more trial and error going on because, uh, yeah, so just things like that. But then the idea is that they've got that external workshop and it's kind of fun and a bit different. But then what we need to do is then say, right, OK, so what sort of strategies were you using? Why was that helpful? Why might it be useful to, you know, look stuff up on Google or chat GTP nowadays? And why might it not be that, you know, when might these things be useful? When might they not be useful? When would brainstorming loads of things be useful? When would, you know, just working by yourself be useful? When would it be useful to collaborate? So just having, asking those questions and getting them to think about it in different contexts is, is really powerful. I think that's really interesting as well because it must make them think a little bit more during their lessons about why their teacher's doing something yeah. they're doing or asking them to do something in a particular way. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. So, you know, if you go back to the basic kind of things about retrieval practice, like we've been talking about that for a long time in my school and, you know, loads and loads of teachers do it. Now, if the kids are have been told, by the way, testing yourself is really helpful for your learning and they've sort of understood that from year seven and then when they're in a lesson where the teacher's just like no by yourselves in silence 
then they buy into that more. They still don't like mm. it, obviously, <laughs> but at least they kind of, and ours are very intellectual, you know, they do get this stuff. At least when you say, come on, this is why I'm doing this, just like, yeah, all right, Dr. Badger, fine. <laughs> um, and they do then sort of get on and do it. And then, you know, after a while, they begin to appreciate it. So I know that my year 11s, we've been doing, you know, retrieval practice since I started teaching in year 10. Like every week, we always have a set of questions that spread across a whole load of topics. And I sent them a survey the other day and asked them. And one of the things that came out really, really strongly was just like, you know, we appreciate the fact that my, our teacher revises stuff or gets us to retrieve stuff from previous lessons. And it's just, they feel so much more confident now as a result. So. I think that's really important, that confidence, isn't it? And the the understanding of why you do things. Because I think yeah. quite often you can do things that students will think, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't I don't get yeah. it. And, and because as we know with retrieval practice, it doesn't often make you feel instantly confident because yeah. of that testing and everything, that they then switch off and go, well, what am I bothering right, doing? What's the point? I don't it's know really anything. hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's where I see – I mean, we tend not to use the word metacognition very much in school anymore. I think of it mm-hmm. like creativity. It can put lots of people off. But, you know, I just think about – well, just think about your learning. Let's talk about how you're learning and why you're doing things in certain ways. Can you make better choices and things like that? So, yeah. So, yeah, the student learning community, I think that's – it's it's just a really – yeah, it's a bit different. It's really cool. You're sort of utilising that peer teaching effect as well because they have to then go and present to their, to their peers. We had them present to governors as well, actually, in the past, some of our students. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great nice. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. And again, you can just start small. You don't need to start with loads and loads and loads, just, you know, a small group of a year group that maybe is a bit more interested in stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, context dependent, some schools might find there's plenty of students that would be able to do that. Some would find there's a very select group that would be able to engage in the right way to make that worthwhile. And yeah, it's all very, very dependent, isn't it? And also like the nature of the research you look at. And as I was saying before, I think that's why the research is great, but you need to see what works in your context. Like my context is academic, all girls, selective West London. That's that's quite, quite different from other places. So um, I'm a governor at a school in Westminster Borough which is a state academy Mm. really really different school like they're very much research informed as well but the sort of ways in which I do things in my school will simply won't work there it you know it's it's a very different context so they might even be reading the same bit of research like the metacognition guide from the education endowment foundation but actually what that looks like in their classrooms is going to be different Um, and so that's that and that's fine and that's what makes teaching interesting (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's so key for people to understand because it's, it's sometimes listening to something like this, you go, oh, you know, why, why can't I do that kind of thing? And then you think, well, no, I have to consider what's right for me and my students and my staff yeah. in, in the context I'm in and adjust and as necessary. Yeah. And what you're trying to achieve. So I think sometimes that's Absolutely. where some of this research thing can go wrong. You're just like, oh, I'm just going to grab what they're doing in that school but they've got a different problem they're trying to solve. Like I know quite clearly what the problem we're trying to solve in my school is like they're bright, they're motivated to work really, really hard. But sometimes that just means hours and hours doing things inefficiently. Mm. Whereas in other contexts, they won't be motivated to work hard. So therefore you've got to work on motivation in a different way and learning in a different way. Whereas I've got to stop my spending hours and hours and hours <laughs> revising, which I know feels like, you know, first world problem. But uh, yeah. I'm really determined to stop them spending hours and hours unnecessarily working. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where it's helpful to have experience across different contexts as well, isn't it? So I've worked at one time in a school quite similar to what you're describing your school is like, and also worked in a school on the absolute other end of the spectrum. So you can really see those differences and, and appreciate what works in one place that, you know, I was doing this successfully three years ago in this place, yeah. but it's absolutely not going to work here. And that's fine. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that's why I found this governor role just so, so cool, because it's really getting me to see what is going on in other schools. And, and just, and it's, it's a tricky one to get right sometimes because, you know, you, you're not meant to do anything with the day-to-day operation. I know you've taken mm-hmm. on a governor role recently, yeah. I remember you saying, um, but, you know, how do you get that balance between, you know, knowing obviously lots of what I do about teaching and education and research, but also I'm not there to, to do any of the day-to-day stuff. I'm there to sort of support with the strategy thing. So, mm. again, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I found it quite interesting because I went, I'm, I'm link governor for English and I went in mm. and did an English visit and I was trying very hard to make sure that what I was doing was listening to the teacher in charge of English and his telling me what he knows about the mm. staff and and taking everything from him. And I said at the end of the day, you know, for me, the main thing was that I needed to know that he was leading it. Yeah. I wasn't really that interested in everything I was seeing yeah. because I wanted, as long as he could tell me what I yeah. was going to see and how I was seeing it. But it is a very different hat yeah. to put on, isn't it, to understand yeah. that. And it's knowing the sort of the right questions to ask. And also, like, you know, I have had some brilliant conversations with the senior staff there and, you know, talking about what I do in my job and what I'm interested mm. in. And, you know, they, they've asked for advice on certain things. But equally, like, as I said, you know, them coming to watch me in my school is not necessarily that helpful for them. Um, although they have been brilliant. They they uh, they have taken some of our PGC students for their placements. So that's been, that's been oh, that's fantastic. Great. That's been a really, really brilliant experience for our trainees. Uh, actually that's a really nice link to be mm. able to make it and probably turning out in a way you hadn't expected or intended it to yeah, when you took on the role absolutely they um they do unusually they do IB in the sixth form um which is and oh, we okay. do IB as well so we've made some links across we've done like a couple of joint trips for the uh, um for the IB as well which is another good link so yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, nice unexpected links to to come yeah, out of something absolutely. that presumably was more about you than your school and became yeah. a little bit wider nice yeah, absolutely so yeah it's good great so before we head into the the cpd library round is there anything that you were hoping to cover that we haven't had a chance to chat about yet no i think that's everything um i have written if people are members of the charter college i've written a few articles on the teacher learning community student learning community thing um so that on impact the last one was joint with jonathan on the student learning community from last year so people interested have a read of that um and then Perfect. i'm trying to do more on twitter but i'm not very good on twitter or x or whatever <laughs> it's called now but i am yeah. there <laughs> and if people want to find you i'll make sure i tag you in the uh, the notes for the episode but if people want to find you can you remind um, us of your handle badger underscore claire i think yeah yeah sure perfect great <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure it is as well <laughs> good <laughs> Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. 
we're heading into the CPD library round now then, well which done. is originally it was meant to be quick fire, uh, but then that never happened because everybody wants to give reasons and stories and that's all fine. Uh, and it was meant to originally be a book, but then it's kind of evolved to, well, you could tell me a person, a podcast, a book, uh, whatever. So whatever comes to you, to mind for you for these categories. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah absolutely perfect. perfect. I have thought a lot about it. It's really hard. Oh, nice one. <laughs> In that case, the first one is first got you into evidence-informed practice. Right. So this one, I went for um, the the big red book, as I call it, which is Cognitive Load Theory by uh, Sweller and Aris and Kaluga. So it is a massive tome. So the reason I got into that one uh, in my first year, like I said, when I was sort of wasn't quite sure what was going on in, in my school, um, we found we came across the learning scientists uh, mm-hmm. actually because one of the original learning scientists was an ex-pupil of a colleague of mine. So that was a really oh. lovely, you know, just fortuitous. So, uh, you know, we were in touch then. They came into school. Jana came into school. And uh, she said, look, if you want to just get on board with any of this research stuff, read this book. And I did. And it really, it was amazing, just that first experience of cognitive load theory. Um, but it's it's quite a dense tome, I would say. So I think what's brilliant now is since then, there's so many more ways of getting into cognitive load theory that doesn't involve having to read the big red book. Um, so that is good. So uh, things like uh, Ollie Lovell's Cognitive Load in Action, I mean, that's uh, that's just a brilliant way. So I would certainly say, you know, what we we're talking about earlier about how difficult it is for some, for teachers who are, you know, teaching all the time to actually get that research. Like there's just loads more things like that out there so yeah only levels is good but if anyone wants to get into the big red book as I call it it is it is good (laughs) that's great I'd not heard of it being referred to I hadn't because you actually like you're saying don't often hear people say they've read the original work in its big form you hear a lot of oh I read the the inaction book or whatever so interesting but yeah nice and nice that we've got these options that we can delve in depth if we want to or not yeah yeah and if you want to do a master's in you know teaching and learning or any sort of research you can or if you just want to do a charter college um thing which is more practice or you just want to do a bit of reading and join a tlc and do something so you can do it at lots of different levels which is great great uh the next one is resonated with you the most so this one is think again by adam grant um i think this is just an amazing book. I think it needs to be known by more people in education, to be honest. Uh, my colleague John and I are like massive Adam Grant fans. We've got really, really into it. And think again, I think the reason it resonated so much for me is this idea that, you know, you have to rethink and relearn and you have to break out of habits. And if I look at some of the habits our girls get into, like I have to learn, 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 and actually know you've got to try different strategies. And it's really hard for them to do that because they've had so much success up until this point there's never been any reason for them necessarily because it's it's working um the other brilliant bit in there was about imposter syndrome so i'm sure we all have imposter syndrome and um you know this idea that to see imposter syndrome is a good thing which i was just oh my god that's amazing because lots of our girls feel like that lots of our staff feel like that i definitely feel like that on occasions and it's a good thing because if you're unsure and you don't have the kind of, oh my God, yes, everything's right, I know everything, then you're more likely to kind of listen to other people or change your mind or do things in a different way. And actually seeing that as a positive, I was just like, oh my God, that's brilliant. So he has this phrase about confident humility in the book, which I really, really like. So everyone should get involved with uh, Adam Grant. It's brilliant. (laughs) Nice. 25 episodes in, and I'm still hearing new books come up all the time, which is great. I wouldn't want to have it any other way. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the next one is Challenged Your Views. 
so this one isn't a book as such. Um, so my colleague and John and I, um, you know, have, have been working on various things and we were trying to do some things about problem-based learning, trying to do some of this skill stuff that's not in the academic curriculum. Now, I was a you know massive fan of Paul Kirshner and that paper from 2006 about discovery learning. So as soon as I was hearing like problem-based learning and project learning, I was just like, oh my God, but that's awful. It doesn't work. Uh, but then John came across um, a place called the Calder Institute in the States that does this really structured um, project-based learning where you kind of, you partner with external um, com- uh, companies. So like uh, there was a few examples they had about uh, a local, like the local police, there's a sort of problem in the uh, in the community you're trying to solve or like a business or a, a sort of startup business has got this particular problem. So you've got this sort of partnership with them and a really structured program that you follow with the, with the kids to get them to sort of come up with a solution to that problem. So that absolutely challenged my views because up until that point, I was just like anything to do with real world problems or discovery learning. I like, I just thought it was utter, utter rubbish, but actually these things really worked and we have actually started to incorporate some of those into our curriculum now, which is really exciting. So uh, we partnered with the council. So last year we did something on helping the council to design a travel friendly, um, a sustainable travel campaign. That was it to encourage people to travel more sustainably in Hammersmith. So, you know, a real problem linked with the council is that the external motivation, but equally, it's not like, here's the problem, toddle off, see you in eight weeks. There's a lot of kind of real structure in there to try and get them thinking. Um, and yeah, that's been really successful, but I wouldn't have thought that I'd be doing project-based learning <laughs> five years ago. Yeah, that's a really good example of something that's, that's not only challenged your thinking, but you've gone with it and you've found benefit from it. And yeah. I think, and that's what I like about asking that one, because some people say, yeah, I read this, that I really didn't think I'd agree with and then actually found myself agreeing with it or read this thing that I thought I agreed with and then realized that actually I didn't and yeah the other way and I think just having that open mind and being able to look at it and sort of see how that might work rather than immediately dismissing it so yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, the next one then it's had the biggest impact on your practice um so this is a uh clinical psychologist called Bettina um Honan who is fantastic she's written a book called the incredible teenage brain uh, I think I mentioned it earlier we had one of our T- TLCs was using that book a few years ago um and like she's just she's not as known enough I don't think in education circles as well lots of people have heard of like Sarah Jane Blakemore stuff on teenage mm-hmm. brains and I think I first came across that idea of teenage brains being different through Sarah Jane's work but that's much more than neuroscience whereas Bettina's stuff is much more about you know like understanding how this then manifests itself in like for individuals or in social situations and just that kind of like understanding why they're acting in the way they are like I used to just get really annoyed with teenagers being really annoying but actually if you realize they're just so socially heightened that sort of social pain social reward then it can really help you understand so when you know you can just sort of say look I understand why you're anxious about this however you know, you don't excuse the behaviour, but at least you can kind of, Bettina has this lovely phrase about come alongside them. So yeah, I think that's really changed how I interact with some of the, the kids I work with. Um, and she's done various talks and things at our school. So she's a brilliant person for insects and stuff. So big up Bettina oh, as well. <laughs> absolutely. Sounds like a good one for people to dig into. Yeah. Um, so should be ECT or ITT required reading? This one I found quite hard because there's loads mm-hmm. of stuff out there and, 
you know, everyone's just like, oh, but I want something practical for the classroom. But I went mm-hmm. with Graham Nuttall's Hidden Lives of Learners mm. because I thought what I noticed with a lot of beginning teachers is it becomes, I, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. It's all like what you're doing as the teacher. Mm-hmm. And actually what's amazing about Hidden Lives of Learners is you realise just how much stuff is going on in the kids' heads when you're teaching and just mm-hmm. how much the interaction with each other. And I think somehow that just having that different perspective as an early career teacher, I think is really important. And I think that book just shows it brilliantly. And it's really, it's, it's a really nice read as well. It's just, yeah. I think that's a nice pick because there's so many, you're right, there's so many out there that are like, oh, all of the practical things. Yeah. And you couldn't pick between them because there are so many, but actually take it as something that's not an immediately practical one, but about you as a teacher understanding the students and, and taking it that way yeah. is, is a nice way to go about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a uh, great book. Where am I up to? Oh, yep, inspired you. So this one, I've gone with a specific person that we have already mentioned. Uh, he doesn't mm-hmm. need his ego stroking anymore. But uh, Bradley Bush from Inner Drive uh, <laughs> is a personal inspiration to me. I just like I would never have thought about like writing a book if he hadn't have asked. So that's kind of yeah so that's really great and he's and he's really encouraging he's really good at connecting different people together he's asked me to speak at conferences before so in terms of you know a personal inspiration that's that but as a company I think they're doing amazing things and Brad's always very very keen to say it's not him it's the company and I would say that all of the people I've interacted with in that company are brilliant we use them for student workshops we use them for teach CPD um, we, and they've got so much stuff that's just free online as well, which is amazing. Um, so loads and loads of like of the sessions I organised for like the pastoral teams to run in form times, just like read this article from you on a drive, here are a few questions to discuss it. So yeah, brilliant company. And thank no. you, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Great. If anybody's listening who doesn't know who we're referring and what we're referring to, which you, you absolutely, I'm sure, do because they've been mentioned on so many episodes. Yeah. I think off the top of my head, it's something like episode 11 or 12 where I spoke to Bradley. Yeah. So that, that's there as well. And you can hear more about kind of the work they do and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, he's also. I, I think he's also an example of someone who genuinely does have good, confident humility. I always think because he's mm-hmm. very clear that he knows. You know, he's a sports psychologist background. He's done some teaching, but he hasn't been in schools for ages. And you know, if you ask him questions, he's just like I don't know. Like the, I've got some research that might suggest, but I don't know. And I think people like that are just yeah. We need more people like that in the world. <laughs> always willing to work with people who are teaching at the moment and go look this is what I've heard and this is what you're experiencing and how can we marry these two things together exactly Exactly. which actually is is completely what we're trying to do with the conversations on this podcast you know from page Mm -hmm. to practice what can you read what you're actually doing and and how do the two things work uh, yeah in harmony yeah absolutely uh where I'm up to then oh most recent yeah I tend to listen to books actually I tend to use mm-hmm. audible a lot um so I find that's a really good way uh, and I listen to those podcasts that's where I came across you so yeah um but the so I've got a couple here the most recent is actually Adam Grant's new book on hidden potential which is also good um but I wanted to sneak in the one before that which was Amy Edmondson's right kind of wrong so um again another organizational psychologist and I do I feel like there's so much in that organizational psychologist world that could have an impact in schools and we're not um using it as much as we could 
so Amy Edmondson's Right Kind of Wrong is all about like reframing failure and thinking about intelligent failure. And there's some really, really cool stuff in there. So yeah, that difference between like intelligent failure where, you know, it's a different, unusual situation. So, you know, making a mistake is good and that's good for learning, which we know is a message that we want to get across to students, but it's quite hard to hear. So there's lots of brilliant mm. stuff in there. Um, she's also done stuff on uh, teamwork and um Oh, I can't remember the name of the the first book on um, psychological safety in organisations, but the fearless organisation, that's it. So Amy oh, Edmondson's work is great. So. And then two more. The next one is next. So what's next up on the to-be-read pile? So I've got, I'm halfway through one. This is a, a recommendation from the head at the uh, school I'm a trustee at, actually, uh, to help with um, being a trustee. So it's called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rommel and that one sort of again what we're saying about trying to you know see what your role is as a as a trustee to kind of mm. get the strategy so I'm sort of halfway through that it's really good so far I need to finish it by the time we have our strategy meeting in January and then <laughs> I've got a second one if I'm going to sneak in a second one uh, which is it. called Quit the Power of Knowing When to Walk Away again recommended by an a, a organizational psychologist we're working with um, and it really struck me this I was running an assembly on the other day with some lower six and sort of what are the skills you need to succeed in the future things like this um about sort of planning and time management as much as anything but one of the things they came up with oh you know never quit keep going keep going and I'm just like actually I don't think that's a good sentiment for for children Mm. to have like you know just I'm just going to work harder I'm just going to work harder and actually no sometimes you just need to stop rethink you know try a different tack so I'm looking forward to reading that one and I'm also going to recommend it to our sixth form. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got one more left. This is doesn't exist, but should. And people have taken it in different ways. They've either gone, oh, well, I'm really interested in this area and I can't find one book on it. Or there's lots of bits and pieces on this thing. I'd like it to be brought together. Or this would have been really useful for me when I was looking into X. So it doesn't exist, but should. Um, well, obviously, there should be a book on creativity and cognitive science. <laughs> Clearly, that's Absolutely. a massive gap in that market. <laughs> but um, apart from that one, um, as I, I was just saying, like some of those books I've just chosen, I think there's kind of space for some of that organisational psychology to come into schools more. So mm. I was almost thinking like a think again in action book. Like you've got like some of these theories or, you know, organisational psychological safety, like in action in schools, whether that's in your classroom or whether that's, you know, in the way that you run your departmental teams or whatever it is. So I sort of think there's there's something there um, that, yeah, because those books are brilliant, but I think it can be hard for some people to see exactly how that can be applied in an educational context. So, yeah, oh, think again in action. there's been so many of these conversations where people have apologized for bringing up books that aren't necessarily from an education background so that's not a bad thing that's a great thing and actually if we could have more of those coming in in the way you're kind of suggesting I think actually that that makes complete sense because we don't want to be that closed bubble that only has stuff that's coming from within the bubble we need and, and, and again, having that, having someone to sort of help translate that, because sometimes it can be a bit difficult. But, you know, I've run, my colleague John and I have run a workshop on Think Again for Year 9 students. Like, we've used some mm. of the examples from the book, and actually it works really well. But, you know, I certainly wouldn't have necessarily thought to do that unless I'd had him to bounce lots and lots of ideas off. So, you know, because I've got time to do that and I've got brilliant people I work with, then, you know, it helps. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Really interesting. And lots of different things have come up in that uh, CPD library round that haven't come up before. So that's great. Yeah. Thank you, well, Claire. Well, <laughs> that's okay. As I said, it took me quite a long time to narrow the list down. But 
yeah. <laughs> it's a nice thinking exercise, I think, Absolutely. sometimes to, to really. go, oh, actually, what book do I think? Yeah. So thank you very much. You've given no. up time on a Sunday morning to yeah. do this. <laughs> um, and actually, as far as I can see, it's actually a sunny Sunday morning, which we haven't had now. recently. So um, I'll uh, leave you to enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, thank you so much. It was really lovely to chat to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Are you interested in evidence-informed practice? Do you have a favourite edgy book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade, which are licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>